Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into these special topics. This Thursday in Lent, we are set to respond to your questions about Lent. Uh, this is something that I was going to do last week, but with the opportunity that we had last week to have John join me, I thought, you want to know what? We'll take up a reflection on God's fatherhood as we did last week putting this reflection, putting this special topic Thursday off for another week. And that's just fine, because as we do, it can be, in a way, as we are now in Lent for a good week, kind of a barometer of how that first week is going. So this is what this evening is going to be about, responding to your questions regarding Lent. Now, as I say that, there are quite a few questions (laughs) that have come in about Lent. So I hope to get through all of these I think there's five or six, and as you know, as I respond to these questions, I also like to take the opportunity to really engage how we might better understand whatever it is we're talking about by an extended reflection. So I make a point to respond to your question, make sure you you get that answer, and then kind of reflect with it. Because, as you've heard me say before, behind every answer is a much more uh, panoramic view of Uh, the Christian and Catholic faith. So depending on how much time we have, uh, we will get through hopefully all of these. Now, that being said, what I've tried to do is order this to some degree in so far as uh, sequence and and building up a continuity. All right, so the first question, where do we see 40 in sacred scripture and what is its deeper meaning? So the number 40 shows up often in the Bible, right? Uh, Because 40 appears so often in the Bible, in context dealing with judgment or testing, uh, many scholars, uh, many writers certainly understand that it is to be a number of uh, probation, trial, purification. Uh, What are some of those examples uh, of the number 40 in the Old and New Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, when God destroyed the earth with water, He caused it to rain how many days and how many nights, but 40 days and 40 nights. We're in the book of Genesis right now, and oh, a few weeks ago, we were in Genesis 7, so we read about the 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, What about the story of Moses? After Moses killed the Egyptians, he fled to Midian, where he spent not days, not nights, not weeks or months, but 40 years in the desert tending flocks. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf for how many days and how many nights? Forty days and forty nights. Incidentally, if you were to go into Deuteronomy, uh, a word that means the second law, right? The law specified a maximum number of lashes a man could receive for a crime, setting the limit at what but forty. The Israelite spies took how many days to spy out Canaan? Forty days. The Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert. We're all familiar with that one. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for how many years? 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David arrived 
to slay him. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. Lastly, in the Old Testament, we also, we also see the number 40 appear in the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jonah. Now, how about the New Testament? In the New Testament, of course, what did we just read this past Sunday? But Jesus being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Also, if you go to the book of Acts, you can find that uh, there were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So, for all of this being said, there's great significance, obviously, because the inspired authors were very intent in letting us know the number of days. So, as the Bible gives a nod then to 40, as it does, when you carefully consider its deeper meaning, you'll see that it is a time of what? Testing, judgment, probation, trial, and ultimately purification, right? And this is what we can say about Lent. It is a time of testing, right? It is a time of judgment where really we look into the mirror and we judge ourselves. And as we fast, we go on this kind of probationary period. It is a time of great trial. It is a time of great purification, all of which points to what? What is on the other side of this great testing, judgment, probation, trial, and purification? But my dear friends, the new day, morning glory, right, on Easter Sunday. So yeah, the significance of the number 40 and its deeper meaning is very important. Thank you for that question. That being said, as we're talking about 40, the next question I want to answer is, uh, what is fasting all about? Why do we fast? And interestingly enough, how do we fast? So we'll just kind of take this all up in, in one uh, brushstroke. While fasting has traditionally meant a, a voluntarily going without food for an extended period, uh, it can also mean any form of self-denial that we undertake. Why do we do this? Well, quite simply, my friends, because we're following the example of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Imitate me. Imitate me. What were we just talking about as it relates to the 40 days? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. I've always loved that verse. And afterward he was hungry. Now, that's the short answer. The longer answer is really to understand that fasting provides for us, in the light of what we were just saying as relates to the significance of the number 40, a powerful opportunity for us to reject sin and really to intensify our prayer life. It helps us to tune out our distractions. Maybe you're giving up that one thing that you absolutely love, that craving, and, and you have this sensation of hunger or, uh, or that sensation of appetite for that one thing. And so your hunger reminds you that it's, well, it's time to eat. But when you fast, maybe that hunger can be an opportunity. Maybe that fast can uh, serve as a reminder to what but pray, pray. So it's, it's just not about giving something up as much as it is also at the same time to intensify your prayer life. Maybe when we recognize that our hunger is this kind of annoyance, put that in context with the cross, our Lord's suffering on the cross. The season of Lent, my friends, is a perfect opportunity to 
really reflect on the greatness of God's merciful love. We give up things because in giving up those things, <laughs> we are immediately reminded in that sense appetite of how much we need something else. Well, God wants to remind us that there's also someone else, and that's Jesus Christ. Self-denial, my friends, is a powerful reminder that our hope is in God alone, right? I remember a, a friend of mine once saying, I get up in the morning and if I, if I didn't have my coffee, I, I would never survive the day. Well, what if we were to give up coffee? And maybe many of you are giving up coffee for 40 days. Maybe we'll turn somewhere else. Maybe we'll turn to Christ who reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. We give one thing or two things up because in that we are made weak, and as we are made weak, we hopefully, by the grace of God, will turn to God. Huh? The grace of God, my friends, will inject more life into our day than a shot of espresso. And, and as I say that, I'm not disparaging any one who loves their coffee and didn't give it up, by no means I, I, I enjoy my coffee. I enjoy a good shot of espresso. But what's first? Who's number one in our life? This is kind of the overarching question of Lent, you know. Who's number one in our life? Remember that when we read in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, do not take other gods, that translates as strange gods. When we become attached to certain things, if we can look at it from the outside, we would probably look at ourselves and say, gosh, how strange it is that we spend so much time watching that program, or how strange it is that we spend so much time gossiping, or how strange it is that we spend so much time being angry about things that are so trivial. In self-denial, I say no to me that I might say yes to you. That's the essence of the why. Because as we do what we do during Lent and giving up this or that, we do so that we might be more present to other. Because if we are being filled up with God, then the natural outgrowth of that will be then present to other. Hmm? And I should say something else as it relates to fasting. Fasting is also praying with the body. Praying with the body. Because if fasting is a form of prayer and really uh, something that helps us intensify our, our conversation with God in words, it does so because fasting itself is a form of prayer. Is not prayer offering? When we give up this or that, are we not, by the grace of God, offering what we are giving up to God? This is a prayer. Fasting is praying with our bodies. Okay, so we've talked about 40 days. We've talked about the significance of fasting. And in this next question, I was doing my homework, and quite honestly, my friends, uh, I didn't get what I was hoping for. I mean, it was a question I had never really thought about before, but uh, where did the giving up of one thing come from? Where did the giving up of one thing come from? I thought, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, we all ask it. It's really interesting. I've been in a number of conversations with non-Catholics, non-Christians, who see the value of fasting, so they'll give up one thing during Lent. 
I was in a most fascinating conversation about two weeks ago with someone who says, he's not an atheist, but he certainly wouldn't consider himself a Christian. He said, you want to know what, Joe? I'm going to fast with you. Now, he's doing it for more physical reasons, but I encouraged him to just be open to God. He said, okay. So I'm praying for that friend. (laughs) Where did giving up one thing come from? Well, what I found is that the roots of the tradition may date back to the 6th century and the influential uh, monastic rule of St. Benedict. For those of you who are unfamiliar with St. Benedict, he founded the Benedictines. Uh, We look at the Benedictines as really uh, the great first religious order, the founder of uh, Western monasticism. And certainly the the Benedictines uh, practiced a great deal of of fasting, prayer, almsgiving. It was really their, their rule of life. And so this is what we read in their Lenten guidelines. During these days, therefore, brothers, let us add something to the usual amount of our service, special prayers, abstinence from food and drink that each one offer to God, something about his prescribed measure. Namely, let him withdraw from his body somewhat of food, drink, sleep, speech, merriment, and with the gladness of spiritual desire that we await in Holy Easter. That's probably the first time you uh, read of something added, one thing added to, to the typical um, practices of the church. So during these days, therefore, let us add something to the usual amount of our service, special prayers, absence, so on and so forth, as I just read. So there in our tradition, in the Catholic tradition, you might have where the one thing comes from. What I do find interesting is that the one thing is a plus one, if you will, right? So we are already giving up certain things, meat on Fridays and other things that we do. I think here the church has picked this up because there is something that we are all attached to. And hopefully by the grace of God, as we are now a week in Lent, you have discerned what that one thing is in your life. And if you haven't, if you've been kind of frivolous, and Lord knows I've been there in past Lent, if you've been kind of frivolous with your first week of Lent, let this evening be an opportunity for you to stop and to ask yourself the question, am I really attacking aggressively that one thing, that I might conquer it for God, that in giving up this one thing, I might actually be opening myself up to God? What is that one thing? (laughs) That's the great question. So let us ask that question. We give up things, and as we do, we are reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, of the greatness of God's grace, and that God's grace is, is sufficient for us, right? We cannot do this alone. I hear it often said, Oh, it's just impossible. That's the idea, right? That's the idea. It is impossible, but in God, he makes it possible. All right, how about the next question here? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus says, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. If we leave the ashes we receive on our foreheads all day, how does that correspond to washings one face? Or do the ashes cleanse us spiritually or something to that effect? 
This is a question that I received, and as I was kind of reflecting with this and, and going online and looking at the different uh, websites and how they handle this question, that question is very similar to other questions that I found. I think what's important here, my friends, as we respond to that question, to look at the context of what Jesus says there. So we read in Matthew 6, verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so that they may appear to others to be fasting. So in Jesus' day, within certain uh, religious circles, people who fasted would make a show of their claim to holiness by their appearance and demeanor, right? Now, since fasting for religious reasons was customarily accompanied by the wearing of sackcloth and ashes, uh, traditional signs of mourning for sin, of course, whenever they fasted, they would go around and in public unkempt and unwashed. They would assume this very glum countenance. They wanted others to notice them, and, and they knew that within Jewish society, nearly everyone they met would recognize these customary indicators of fasting. So Jesus knew that many of the people who practiced this custom were what? Hypocrites. That is to say, their intention was not to be holy, right? But simply to be viewed by others as holy. The sad and dirty face, the, the rumpled clothes, these were calculated to elicit this kind of response of admiration for the religious behavior. Jesus did not want his followers to imitate that, right? He did not want his followers to imitate the externals. He was always probing the interior life. Now, it's interesting in, in getting to the heart of your question. In contemporary Western culture, you know, the situation on Ash Wednesday is quite different from uh, what Jesus was experiencing, right? Because when you really think about it, I mean, non-Christians, and even to some extent some Christians, may mock those who, whose foreheads are smudged with ashes. Others may not, but they wince in disdain at the practice. In these circumstances, my friends, you know, keeping the ashes on our faces throughout the day doesn't often elicit admiration from others, but rather contempt or indifference. You know, our intention in wearing them then is clearly not that we hope to be viewed by others as holy. In fact, the people that uh, I know who wear the ashes all day have quite other intentions. And in the end, what we are talking about here is intention. So it's really hard to get at the, the finer detail insofar as when you speak to <laughs> the intention, you're looking at the heart, right? Maybe some people do wear the ashes with the hope that people fall in admiration of, a, of, of some external practice. But in the end, we can't speak to that because we can never judge the heart, right? I was talking about this the other day as it relates to the objective and subjective. The subjective is the internal unseen, hidden away. You can never judge what motivates someone to do what they do. You can never judge the heart. My hope is when people, uh, if and when people are in disdain, that it be an opportunity to witness, to witness to the greatness of God's love, His humble love. I'm sure some of you have been asked the question, if you are one who is Catholic and, and uh, who are smudged with ashes, right, that uh, people are asking you questions. You know, why do you do that? 
tell me about your faith. So it also becomes an opportunity to evangelize. Very uh, important as we reflect into uh, this question. In the end, (laughs) we wear the ashes because we say, yes, I am a sinner in need of repentance. Yes, I am a sinner and and I am in solidarity with uh, my fellow Christians. We smudge our foreheads to remind ourselves that God loves us, as a good priest friend of mine likes to say, all the way to the ground. And as he does, he does so to then pick us back up again on that great Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. All right, how are we doing with time? I have some questions about the stations here. All right, I think we have a little bit of time left. So again, this question is about the the Stations of the Cross, and there's a couple of them here. How did the Stations of the Cross come up with 14 stops? Is it biblical in nature? Uh, No, not all the stations or stops along the way of the cross are mentioned in sacred scripture, but certainly each one may be considered an extension of the events that are recorded in the Gospels. Uh, The evangelists do not describe, uh, per se, Jesus' falling three times, but certainly pays honor to this great figure in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, that we know uh, as Simon of Cyrene, who helps Jesus carry his cross, probably as a consequence of a fall. Uh, Likewise, we know that the gospel is silent on Jesus' meeting his mother and Veronica's wiping his face. But St. Luke mentions women who mourned and lamented him in chapter 3, Luke chapter 23, verse 27. So these meetings could have occurred at that time. St. Jerome, incidentally, my friends, remarks on visits paid to these holy places. So devotion to the way of the cross uh, was quite ancient. Although the number of stops has varied, I think, throughout the years, if you were to go into the New Catholic Encyclopedia, they note that uh, the number has been as few as five and as many as 30. Something we have to be mindful of as we are reflecting into this is uh, that great passage that comes to us from 2 Thessalonians 2.15, that passage that speaks to uh, the importance of just not what is being handed on by letter, but also by word of mouth. What does St. Paul say? Stay steadfast to the oral traditions which have been handed on. You know, we have what, 20 years between the death of Christ and the first epistle that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica. 20 years, 20 years of a sacramental saving church. Was the the way of the cross practiced then? Probably to some extent were faithful Jews and and Jews who, who converted to the way, as it was described initially, right, the way that became Christianity, um, certainly they would have practiced in a very pious manner uh, the way of the cross, the, the Via Dolorosa, right? The way of the cross to Calvary. Now, I speak to the falling because in another question here, I get, where did we get Jesus' falling three times? And again, there's no real telling exactly where we got the three other than there's great significance and symbolic meaning to three. We should remember that the stations themselves, as we know them, are rather a late development in Western Europe, actually. 
the practice had its roots in pilgrimages made by ancient Christians as they retraced uh, Jesus' steps to Calvary along the Via Della Rosa, okay? And again, probably following the pattern of what the first Christians were doing. And so in saying that, perhaps there was a local historical tradition uh, in that city, which was learned by European pilgrims and, and brought back home. One popular medieval German devotion was actually known as the Seven Falls of Christ. It's interesting, in this depiction, Jesus fell when he met his mother, when Simon of Cyrene shouldered his cross, when Veronica wiped his face, and when the women of Jerusalem began to weep. Incidence is reflected, of course, in our present day, what, fourth stop, fifth stop, sixth stop, and eighth stop, huh? Uh, The other three falls in that devotion correspond to those in our third, seventh, and ninth station. So, Whatever their historical basis may be, the falls and the stations serve really as a sobering reminder that in his passion and death, Jesus suffered more than we can ever imagine and did it all because of his merciful love for us. And that's the bottom line. We have those three falls, I personally think, because the three is so symbolic of the beauty of our faith. Not only the three days in the tomb of the world, but also, of course, in the Trinity. Death and life, right? And this is what we need to be thinking about. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.